Good day, mate. Forty here. I haven't been streaming much the last month, and I think it's time that I become more honest with you. I've had this this profound sense of fatigue, and then this feeling of fatigue was followed by a deep, profound sense of emptiness. Now, luckily, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. And I have great news this evening. I can assure you it has not recurred. Why? Well, women sense my power, mate, and they seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, but I do deny them my essence. So I think we're alone now. Doesn't seem to be anyone around now. So I don't want you to... Think of this as a very, you know, very unpopular show, right? Think of this as you've been invited to a very exclusive party, right? So, children behave. That's what they say when we're together. And watch how you play. They don't understand. And so we're running just as fast as we can, holding on to one another's hand, trying to get away into the night. And then you put your arms around me and we tumble to the ground. And then you say, I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be anyone around now. I think we're alone now. The beating of our hearts is the only sound. Okay, so I want to talk about the essential Jew, the essential Palestinian, the essential Muslim. Right? There was what, a story in the New York Post, uh, this doctor warning about Zionist doctors. Right? And so I've got Jewish friends who go, oh, man, you know, I never want to go to to a Muslim doctor after this, right? Beverly Hills doctor acts for anti-Semitic posts calling Zionists demonic and greedy. A Beverly Hills radiologist has been fired from his lucrative job after sharing an onslaught of anti-Semitic posts to his ex-account that bash Zionists as genocidal, demonic, greedy, pedophilic, uh, racist. Changed my mind, added Dr. Andrew Deary, who was fired from his position as chief medical officer at Expert MRI after the medical center was made aware of his disturbing anti-Semitic comments. Ahead of getting laid off, Thierry wrote in a separate post, the angry little Zionist war pigs are big mad, their lies and deceit aren't waiting anymore, their powers are waning, they are scared, and they are lashing out. The only thing Zionists are superior at are lies, deceit, and genocide. So he was earning 173000 a year. And then he took to X to issue an apology that if uh, anyone had interpreted his words the wrong way. So a lot of people get, you know, overheated social media, particularly with regard to what's going on in the, you know, Arab-Israeli, Israeli-Gaza-Israeli-Hamas conflict. So Beverly Hills radiologist, man, Dr. Andrew Thierry. And then people on, on all sorts of ends of this conflict are saying some crazy things. Here's uh, Sam In Harris. long term, uh, it's hard to see how Israel is a viable project uh, under the, on this the, the, with the current assumptions of a so-called two-state solution. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I mean, either they're not really states, or something has radically changed about the the cultures. But there's no one-state solution given what most. Islamists and jihadists and, you know, conservatives among the Palestinians actually want, right? I mean, that's, that's a recipe for, for uh, at, at the minimum, just a demographic change that is, is not compatible it, with demogra- the endurance of 
fewer state. A demographic change where the entire our population of Gaza is relocated to a different country, and that the country is then subsumed in the part of Israel. That would be right. like genocide, right? At least cultural. No, no, no it's not genocide. No, 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 no. Genocide has it's a specific meaning. Okay, genocide okay has- at, at very least, then it, it is a forced relocation. Yeah, to, to say that people are moving 10 miles to somewhere else where they share the same language, same, same culture, and same religion, and to call that genocide, I think, is just robs the word genocide of any meaning. You mean ethnic cleansing. You mean, you mean ethnic cleansing, right? Which is a word, right, which is right, a phrase yeah. that's often used along, geno- along with genocide, and they are worlds apart with respect to their moral implications. I mean, history is just full of ethnic cleansing, which means people moving. Right, people who can't get along wind up moving yeah, apart. Right, that happens. A, a, a- so I, I think Sam Harris makes some good points here, but of course I'd say that I'm a rabid Zionist, and Sam Harris is a Zionist too. Hell of a lot, and it's you know, it, it can be awful in terms of you know when when done at the point of a sword, which happened, uh, which happened in, under under Islam again and again and again. I mean, nobody's losing sleep over the Jews that got run out of. Syria and Yemen and and Iraq and Egypt and Morocco and all, all after 1948, right? Like no one's talking about their right of return. You know what happened to their homes? The UN's not worrying about that, right? And yet everyone is worried about the Palestinians as this perpetual refugee population. What about all the people who left Syria in 2015 and went to to Sweden, right? Okay, they've been, but that. Do they have perpetual refugee status or are they just now in Sweden? So, Sam, just to clarify, so you are saying that like ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strait isn't extreme position? Two million people. It's it's totally extreme. It is totally extreme in in that it's a non-starter. I mean, like no one one in the Palestinian world wants that, right? And the Arab and, uh, you know, if you look at the Arab state's contribution to the status quo over the last 50 okay no one in the palestinian world wants that well it depends how bad things get all right if if uh, life in gaza remains absolutely horrible and there is a better living arrangement available elsewhere right i think a large number of people would rather move out of gaza i i think that there is some basis for for calling gaza an open-air prison but at least half the reason that gaza is an open-air prison is because Egypt keeps it that way. Like Egypt, an Arab Muslim state, wants nothing to do with Palestinians. The years, it has been very deliberately to hold the the Palestinians in perpetual refugee status, so as to to put the the existence of Israel in question perpetually. I, I completely understand the national the nationalistic and uh, aspirations of. The Palestinians, and there is an analogy to any other any other group of people that want their own nation. But the moral core of this problem and the asymmetry of it should be unignorable. This is you know a statement that you've probably heard me make, and you've probably heard Douglas Murray make it. But it's it's nonetheless true, which is if if the if the Palestinians put down their weapons, if they were peaceful. Right. If they and, and even if they were peaceful protesters of a you know a Gandhian sort, right, they would th- this this problem would be solved and the two societies could live happily together. There would be a two state solution. There would have been a two state solution decades ago. 
happened okay, is if okay, the so Jews of Israel put down their weapons, there would be a genocide, right? October 7th reveals that to be as objectively true as a statement as we can make in these in these in this sort of area. So the the only point I was going to raise there is like you've had Netanyahu come out and say there won't be a two state solution. We can't. But that's because uh, of who the Palestinians are and because of what is how Islam is informing their worldview, right? If is okay, that's that's something I want to tackle because of how the Palestinians are. Right? There's no essential Palestinian. All right, the reason. I deny women my essence is that I have no essence. I am different in different situations, right? In some workplaces, I am top 1% in my performance. In other workplaces, I would be bottom 1% in my performance, right? You gave me a job as a National Football League quarterback. I would be bottom 1% in my performance. In some situations, you know, I'm honest and trustworthy. In other situations, I'm dishonest and slimy. Right? In some situations, I do the right thing. In other situations, I don't. All right? So the Palestinians are who the Palestinians are because of circumstances in addition to their own ethnic, uh, genetic heritage, religious, cultural influences. All right? But there's no essential Palestinian, all right? just like there's no essential Jew because Jews and Arabs and Muslims and all groups manifest differently. So in different situations. So I've got Jewish friends who say, oh, I'll never go to a Muslim doctor after reading a story about Dr. Andrew Thierry. And I think that's insane because just knowing that your doctor is Muslim tells you nothing about him. Like I would expect that most Muslims in the United States are fairly secular, right? Just knowing that your doctor is Jewish doesn't tell you almost anything about him. You'd have to understand like, is he of German Jewish heritage? Is he Orthodox? Is he secular? Right, you need to know a lot more. There isn't just an essential Christian, Palestinian, Israeli that you can just boil down and and know who they are. If Islam were a peaceful religion. If Islam was Jainism, in some situations, Islam's a peaceful religion. In other situations, you know, Israel, uh, Islam, is a violent religion. In some situations, Christianity is a peaceful religion. In other situations, like certain Christians tend to be more peaceful than other Christians. Certain Muslims tend to be more peaceful than other Muslims, all right? Muslims in Southeast Asia tend to be fairly peaceful compared to the more robust Muslims of, say, Pakistan and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. So different Muslims in different contexts behave differently. Different Jews, right? Ashkenazi Jews, Safari Jews, Mizrahi Jews largely lead separate lives. There's some intermarriage between these groups, but by and large at the synagogues, I've gone to overwhelmingly Ashkenazi Jews are primarily friends with other Ashkenazi Jews. Sephardi Jews are friends with other Sephardi Jews and Mizrahi Jews, you know, largely hang out with Mizrahi and Sephardi Jews. And there was no notion of, of jihad. We would have a completely different situation, right? If they were, if they were, if they had a leader, if they were producing leaders like Gandhi, right? Who were the, the reason that Palestinians haven't produced leaders like Gandhi is because any Palestinian who acted like Gandhi in this current situation would be killed. Right, the Palestinians are who they are because they have been in a rather unfortunate situation. Right, who would wish to be in the situation of the Palestinians? So it's not like Palestinians just essentially support Hamas. In dire situations, right, Palestinians and other people support dire solutions to their problems. In more peaceful, prosperous situations, Palestinians are less likely to support Hamas. Right, Palestinian support for Hamas waxes and wanes depending upon the incentives that Palestinians have, right? 
Israeli support for extreme right politics varies depending upon circumstance. Right? When you are in a situation where you feel like your life is under threat, your people are under threat, all right, you're more likely to support extreme solutions. Right? In a prosperous environment where you have all sorts of incentives to cooperate with outgroups and to trade with outgroups, Right, you're going to have a more tolerant liberal attitude, or who you know, or Martin Luther King Jr. Right, there would, it would be a completely different situation. And again, Netanyahu is awful, and and again, culpable for the the, the disaster he's presiding over. Right, um, so Israel needs better leaders. Right, but th- he is reacting to the re- to to the ongoing reality of what the- you know who also is reacting to the ongoing reality: Palestinians, Hamas. Iran, right? Iran started pushing for nuclear weapons in a particularly intense way after they saw the United States knock over the the governments of Afghanistan and Iraq, right? When you you start bullying people in in a neighborhood, right? Other people in that neighborhood are going to pay attention and then try to find ways to defend themselves, right? It's not like there's just some essential inherent quality of mullahs or of Islam or of the Iranians that is just inherently, you know, demonic or bloodthirsty or, or set on, on exploding nuclear weapons. In different circumstances, the Iranian people would have different interests. But in large part, because of choices that the United States has made, disastrous choices in, in the Middle East, right, the Iranians have reacted. And understandably, in their own self-interest, they want to push the United States out of the Middle East. Uh, and that is what they're incentivized incentivized to do the, what the Palestinians and even the surrounding Muslim states have wanted since Israel was born 70 some odd years ago. Right. And it's that, and, and so much of the conversation, it has been explicitly genocidal as to make anything. So when do you start having genocidal conversations? When do you start having genocidal rhetoric? When life is good, when your life is prosperous, when there are great incentives to do deals and to trade and to work with outgroups, right? No, then people don't talk about genocide. But in dire situations where there is an intense conflict of interests, right, and you are geographically inseparable, that's when you get genocide. Genocide just doesn't emerge out of the Bible or out of the Koran or out of Machiavelli's The Prince. Right? Genocide emerges out of a situation where you have an intense clash of interests by two people who are stuck living together, and it's inherently unstable until one side wins out over the other. Other than a a very strong defensive posture, uh, unthinkable uh, for for the Israelis. And all those those same circumstances, right? They they also affect how Palestinians behave, right? The more prosperity. And, and good things that the Palestinians see on the horizon, the less likely they are to support extreme solutions. The more you have going on in your life that's positive, the less likely you are to support extreme politics. Right? The more you lose at life, then the more likely you are to buy into extreme solutions. As my therapist said to me many years ago, said, I, I, I wonder if you're into such extreme politics because you're so passive in how you lead your life. Right? You're not you know, building up a career. You're not earning a, a great deal of money. You're just scraping by in a passive way in your real life and then talking about all sorts of you know, extreme solutions in politics. 
All right, let's go to Goodfellas from the Hoover Institute. This has really changed matters in the Middle East. Does all of this re retaliatory action, does it really move us forward toward deterrence? You know, it can, it can play a role in re restoring deterrence, Bill, but you, you don't really accomplish outcomes with strikes, right? And, and uh, you know, my friend and historian Conrad Crane had a great essay uh, in, in the early 2000s called The Lure of the Strike. And it makes you feel good. And a lot of times it's important. It's important to impose costs on an enemy like Iran's proxy network uh, that go beyond the costs that they factor in when they conduct aggression against us. And that aggression was at least you know, 165 attacks against U.S. facilities and U.S. personnel since October. So Elliot Blatt says, I'm a total bottom. And, and you're saying that, bro, is that that's a bad thing. I mean, that's just your hero system. And your hero system being a total bottom is a bad thing. But in a different hero system, being a total bottom is like the greatest thing you can possibly be. Seventh, uh, since the, the, the horrendous attack against Israel. So you can't, you can, it's a step in the right direction, Bill, but it, it's, on, it's not going to be decisive in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to a Jewish friend yesterday and I wanted to talk to him. He's probably centrist to center left in his politics, consistently votes for the Democrats. And I was just curious what he thought of Israel's invasion of, of Gaza. And he thought that, you know, Israel had to do it. And then he said, well, what do I think? And I said, uh, on balance, if you push me to the wall, I think it's a mistake. But then I'm five minutes later, I changed my mind because I, I don't know how Israel can live with a cascade of rockets coming out of from, from Gaza. So if there was just like a one-off October 7 type attack, I don't think that would necessitate an invasion of Gaza. But then if you've got ongoing rocket attacks from Gaza, then I don't know how you can just make peace with it. All right. History, history Speaks uh, writes on Twitter. Sam Harris very much mask off here. He opposes a two-state solution on the grounds of jihad, says it's unviable because of who the Palestinians are. Well, I agree with History Speaks here that there's not an essence to Palestinians. Uh, Palestinian behavior like Jewish behavior or uh, Indian behavior depends upon circumstances. Uh, Sam Harris opposes a one-state solution on the grounds of maintaining a Jewish demographic majority. Why should an atheist care about this? Because people care about people. All right, people care about people that are similar to them. People tend to care about their tribe and their in-group more than they care about out-group. And he insinuates that ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is morally acceptable. Well, compared to mass slaughter or mass misery, sometimes the, the moving of one people is a superior solution. Uh, Sam Harris cites low-information demagogue Douglas Murray as the foundation for his views. On Netanyahu says... He's just defending against jihad. No mention of the religiously inspired in the long term to uh, settlement of the Likud party. Wish I could debate this clown. He knows. I wouldn't say Sam Harris knows nothing. I'd just say that he's got a, a different uh, hero system from History Speaks. Yep. I'm struggling uh, to make sense of the administration's Middle East policy. We've discussed this before, but I, I could never really understand why. Yeah, I, I don't understand why either, but for completely different reasons from Neil Ferguson. I think that American foreign policy should be primarily based on American interests. And I would see that we are way overly involved in the Middle East. And it would be in America's interest to increasingly disengage and instead concentrate on stymieing the rise of China. They wanted to try to resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal, uh, cut some slack to Tehran. And uh, in the process, I think inadvertently derail what had been going so well under the previous administration, the Abraham Accords and the progress towards reconciliation between Israel and, and the Arab states. It never seemed likely to me to work, and it always had an 
an obvious downside risk that Iran would feel emboldened and would also be uh, financially in a better position to encourage. And uh, Elliot Blatt says, my understanding is that the average Gazan IQ is 73. I'm positive it's much higher than that. I would suspect that even in these difficult situations, it's probably in the uh, low 80s. And in a, in a different situation, I suspect that uh, it would you know, approach 90. Right? There's a ton of uh, cousin marriage in the Middle East, which depresses IQ. So if they would abandon these low IQ practices, I'm sure they could push into the 90s. Uh, it's proxies in the region to make trouble. Uh, and this is exactly what's happened. Uh, and it's happened in ways that the administration clearly didn't expect. Uh, otherwise, Jake Sullivan wouldn't have published his essay in Foreign Affairs, confidently saying that all was well in the region, uh, only uh, days before catastrophe. So Noam Chomsky, when he would be asked uh, for a title for a lecture, he would, for, for decades, he'd say the crisis in the Middle East, because he was confident that at whatever time and circumstance the, the lecture would take place, that there would be some crisis in the Middle East. And that's in large part due to the combination of genetics and geography and intense conflicts of interest in areas where you've got two peoples with you know, diametrically opposed visions. If he struck on October the 7th, I don't think Iran is being deterred by any of this. My sources in the region say that these attacks are very carefully calibrated and signposted uh, so that they have almost a demonstrative quality, symbolic rather than militarily valuable quality, and they don't direct. Okay, so they are discussing here United States attacks against the Houthis. So I, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, do you, do you lose sleep about attacks on the Houthis? Do you lose sleep on uh, the suffering in Gaza? I mean, Gazans are suffering terribly, but because my in-group, right, Jews, is engaged in intense conflict with this out-group, Gazans, I don't lose sleep over Gazan suffering, though I have to just objectively note that it's huge. It's a tremendous amount of suffering in Gaza, and therefore I, I don't expect Gazans to to care one bit about Jewish suffering, right? When you have an intense conflict of interest, right, you have essentially what appears to be a battle of the, to the death between these groups. Exactly, Iran, uh, and Iran therefore feels it can continue to make mischief in the region with something close to impunity until Iran is made to pay a price uh, for the antics of its its proxies. It's hard. okay. So make Iran pay a price. So what happens right, if? You make Iran pay a price. You think Iran just licks its wounds and think, oh, we better not be naughty anymore. We've just paid a price. Now, what in all likelihood happen is that Iran fights back hard. And Iran could do us tremendous damage. You know, just a few hit squads going off in the United States could, you know, end life as we know it in, in major cities. So the, the good fellows here from the Hoover Institute talk as though if we just get tough on this group or that group, that uh, you know these bad outgroups will learn their lesson, but instead, what will happen is that they will fight back hard, and we'll have a conflagration that's very much against America's best interests. Highly disruptive antics, because not only are lives being lost, but global trade is being subjected to considerable uh, distortion by the uh, actions of the Houthis in the Red Sea. I think the so, I think different groups, you know, ha have some different tendencies and some different gifts. Okay, so prior to about the 14th century, there was no widespread notion that Jews were particularly smart. But since the 15th century, there's been a widespread notion that uh, Ashkenazi Jews in particular are above average in intelligence. But you put Ashkenazi Jews in a particularly miserable situation, 
you put them in a situation where they increasingly marry out, out of their group, then Ashkenazi average IQ will decline, as it is, I believe, in Israel and in uh, Europe and in the United States. You put uh, people like the Koreans, right? Uh, 80 years ago, they had relatively low IQ scores, and then circumstances changed, and, and now they're thriving. And so it seems like the the average IQ for the people of Northeast Asia, whether Japan, China, Korea, is all around 105 to 107. So circumstances change, you unleash prosperity, and in different situations, people's innate abilities can come to the fore. So you can raise people, raise children in certain situations, and parents can act on children like you act on a rubber ball. You can press and compress, and you can strongly incentivize them to be one way. But when they become adults, when they become independent, they will increasingly follow their own innate trajectory unless you have committed so much harm against them that it becomes very difficult for them to follow the direction of their innate abilities. region is going to be in a very unstable state. And I was much struck by Bill Burns's article in Foreign Affairs, which struck... Am I going to acknowledge Black History Month? I am a quiver of a Black History Month, bro. It's about, frankly, it's pretty much the only topic I've talked about in my private life for the last 22 days. So this is really, this is the first time I have gone 25 minutes of my waking hours not rejoicing in Black History Month. A very different tone from the article Jake Sullivan published. This is an article that just came out by the Director of Central Intelligence saying that he cannot remember seeing the Middle East uh, in a more dangerous state than it is now. But I have to say that's a... Powerful, powerful statement here from Elliot Blatt. He is going to block Hamas on Twitter. That's something that we can all do to make the world a better place. Terrible indictment of the administration's uh, policy. I think this could be salvaged, but it's getting... So my critique of administration policy is that we're overly involved and overly aggressive in the Middle East. Niall Ferguson's critique is that we're insufficiently aggressive and insufficiently launching military attacks in the Middle East. Harder and harder, because I'll say one more thing. I still don't really see a good end game for Israel in Gaza that doesn't re- uh, leave uh, Israel exposed to attack from Hezbollah in Lebanon. And so the core of this... Yeah, so we are, I expect, going to see Israel invade uh, southern Lebanon to try to squash squash Hezbollah. But going back to the essence, all right, we, we do have genetic tendencies, right? There are genes, genetics, and then... They're how genes express, and that will depend in part upon the environment. So you have the, the genetics, the, the genotype, and then the phenotype, which is how the gene expresses itself. That expression will often depend upon the environment. So there's no inherent quality to, to Jew, Muslim, Christian, white, black, Asian. Right? Different peoples often have different innate abilities, but these abilities will express themselves completely differently depending upon circumstance. This problem, which is the greater insecurity Israel has been uh, experiencing, looks very difficult to fix. And it's almost impossible to see it getting fixed if the Biden administration is not only doing too little to deter Iran, but it seems more concerned to lean on Israel. To Right. The more we, we do to deter Iran, the more Iran will be incentivized to become vicious. Find up its military operation against Hamas. In short, I find the strategy baffling and I don't see a good uh, end game. Well, let me try to be the guy. I'll be the simpleton here. Right? Yeah. Who gets to? I'll, I'll uh, for us, please. But, but well, I'll put up the view that you guys can swat down, uh, and maybe that'll make you more effective. Uh, it seems to me we're at the stage of, um, you know, the stage of a bar fight where the two guys are pushing each other to show who's tougher. And my initial reaction was, uh, 
I've never been in a bar fight, but the advice I've heard is land the first punch and land it well. Sort of what HR said, you know, sort of the Powell doctrine. We don't do things for show. You do things only to completely diminish the uh, the uh, opponent's uh, ability to fight, and you you fight to win. But um, there's a good Wall Street Journal article that I sent around, and we talked a little bit about email that, that led me to, to rethink things. And here we're kind of turning around on, on Ukraine. Originally, I, I was the hawk, and Neil was, oh, don't die. we don't want to escalate and, and uh, endanger that uh, thing. And here I'm. I'm wondering, I have been influenced to think that maybe what the Biden administration is doing is not so bad. Uh, Iran clearly wants to keep out of a major war. They want to have their proxies cause trouble, but just enough to stay out of a major war. And it's not clear Iran completely controls these guys. Uh, they, uh, you know, they all have their independent ideas of what shape to do. You know, some of them are Sunni, some of them are Shiites, and some of them are Persians, and not everybody here gets along <laughs> just to start with. Uh, <clears throat> where are we? There has been no Hezbollah war yet. Uh, Saudi Arabia still quietly wants to pursue. So we, we do know... Palestinian political preferences. We we have enough polling that that's solid enough. We know that support for Hamas and some Palestinian support for these kind of violent extreme groups right grows. The more depressed Palestinians become about their prospects, the more optimistic they become about their prospects. Right, then the less they support these extreme groups like Hamas to uh, a peace accord with Israel eventually uh, that involves some sort of promises about two-state solution and nobody ever talks about exactly what that means. Uh, you know, will the Palestinian state say, yeah, we recognize the right to Israel to exist as a Jewish state. That's sort of like number one and that's the one that isn't happening. But um, is it so bad uh, to try to keep this at the pushing stage of the bar fight uh, and, um, and, and keep it from turning into a major war? Attacking Iran would turn it into the major war that we're trying to dance around not doing. So wh why am I so dumb here? Yeah, I'd just like to point out that, you, you know, the problem with that, John, is, is that Iran is pursuing a strategy based on its the ideology of the revolution and the objectives, the associated objectives to uh, to really expand uh, Iran's hegemonic influence across the region, push the United States out of the region as the first step uh, in, in what that ultimately seeks is the destruction of Israel. And, I mean, and uh, they did and so, not send Hezbollah to start a, a major war. So they are still they're willing to do this so long as it doesn't involve a big war with Iran. Well, well right, now, right now they're doing everything on their own terms because they're, they're holding back the 150,000 or so rockets uh, in Hezbollah to deter Israel and deter us from direct strikes on, on Iran. And with that. Wait, this is <laughs> I played the wrong video. That, that's not like me. Right, this is okay, this is the video I intended to play. Forces are defeating Hamas and they are probably couple of months away from completely destroying Hamas, not only as a terrorist. Okay, so yeah, this is Niall Ferguson saying that he sees a lot of good news in, in the Middle East. Here he is with uh, John Cochran, the economist at Stanford, and uh, Dan Senior in Cast, Israel. Which, which means there's one, one man left out here, which, uh, which I'll, I'll make my case to Professor Cochran later on to come onto the Comic Back podcast. But we've had HR and we've had Neil. Yeah, so, so if, we had more, if we had more time on the show, I'd ask you. You did a show with Mike Murphy once, Dan, where I think yeah. Neil is one of your most popular guests. I'd like to like to get the background on that, but maybe when you have you back again. So let's go to Neil, who is sitting in Jerusalem right now, having just come out of meetings with high-ranking Israeli officials. Neil, to the extent you can tell us what we discussed, tell us what you learned today. Well, I learned uh, today and, and yesterday uh, that uh, the Israeli Defense Forces are defeating Hamas, and they are probably a couple of months away from completely destroying Hamas, not only as a terrorist force, but as the de facto government of Gaza. And uh, they are very reluctant indeed to heed international calls, including calls from Okay, so that sounds amazing, but at what price, right? You don't think there's going to be blowback if you know, it's true that approximately 30,000 Gazans have been killed in the process of destroying Hamas, right? It sounds good to destroy Hamas, but have you created even more dire incentives for more, more extreme versions of, of groups you know, like Hamas? Like you can't kill, kill the idea. Right. You, you've destroyed this uh, military force, perhaps, but have you done so at the price of creating even stronger incentives for you know, this kind of extreme terrorism to rebound out of Gaza? U.S. officials uh, to have a ceasefire before this job is done. 
the other thing that I'm very struck by, and this is based not just on conversations with officials, uh, but also conversations with ordinary Israelis from a broad spectrum. I've been doing my, my level best to sample opinion right across from the ultra-Orthodox to the secular left. Ordinary Israelis are, are done with two-state solutions as a conversation topic. They're done with it. And, and they feel... And that means what? Okay. The significance is, is, is what? Okay. If circumstances change so that a two-state solution looks more appealing than alternatives, then Israeli opinion will change. Right? It's not like there's this transcendent uh, righteousness to collective opinion, be it in Israel or anywhere else. You can be collectively wrong. Right, people are collectively wrong all the time. Uh, however much they, they may disagree on certain political issues, they, they feel to me very united in regarding this as a quite inappropriate thing to discuss in the way. And so united is often good, right? It feels good to be united with the, with the people around you. But then circumstances change and then there, there are more incentives for expressing and following disagreement and more openness to intercourse with, with our groups. So yeah, under times of threat, Right. When your in-group feels like it's fighting for its life, it's going to be united and it's going to be strongly opposed and strongly critical and you know, feeling all sorts of revulsion towards out-groups. And in certain circumstances, that's an adaptive reaction. Circumstances change, right? then you have more incentives for, for trade and other forms of intercourse with out-groups. Wake of the horrendous terrorist attacks of October the 7th. Uh, th those, that feeling is very striking to me. I found... Uh, greater national unity here than, than I think I was anticipating. I know, Dan, that you've been here recently too. I'd be interested to compare, compare notes, but that's, those are my two impressions. The, the government is not about to stop this uh, war against Hamas, uh, regardless of what is said to them uh, internationally. And people are broadly speaking behind this effort. So this is, I think, what Tom Saul would call stage one thinking, right? Stage one, let's say Israel destroys Hamas. Okay, what happens stage two? Like, what happens next? What's the price, right? On the face of it, it sounds like a wonderful thing. Right, sounds fantastic, but at what price? And what will be the consequences? And what happens now? And what were the alternatives? Right, the United States invaded Afghanistan and Iraq after 9/11, and these were disastrous choices. Instead of taking a military option, right, the United States would have been better served taking a law enforcement option, mounting raids and drone attacks to take out Al Qaeda, and forming alliances and cutting off their their funding. Instead, we wasted $7 trillion and thousands upon thousands of lives uh, invading and occupying Afghanistan and Iraq. And, and so, too, I don't know if Israel's invasion of, of Gaza is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm certainly not strongly opposed or strongly supportive of it. And very uninterested in talk of a two-state solution. Yeah, let's go to Dan. You, you did a Call Me Back episode recently with your sister, Dan, that was just heart-wrenching in her talking about uh, the climate in Israel. Compare it to uh, what you experienced, what Neil just said. Yeah. I and you don't think people could do absolutely heart-wrenching videos with residents of Gaza? What, 90% of, of buildings have been severely damaged, if not destroyed, in Gaza. Uh, approximately 29,000 people supposedly have been killed. Right? Uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict has been brutal for both sides. Right? Both sides have, have re legitimate reasons to feel victimized. I, I had the same impression that Neil has. I, when I was there, I was meeting with a range of officials, of officials both in and outside the government. And even within the coalition government, there's a range of views, obviously, because many of the members of the government, including members of the war cabinet, are bitter political enemies. You know, Netanyahu and Gantz basically hate each other personally. Uh, Gadi Eisenkot, who's a part of uh, Gantz's party, which is and he's in the war cabinet, cabinet, also has been very public in his criticism of Netanyahu. And yet on the issues that Neil just spoke about, there's more or less unity. I went there in these meetings I had in Israel looking for daylight. And if you 
follow the press over here in the West, you, you're going there. Exp- right. So they're talking as though unity is automatically a good thing and that it's a significant thing. Right? Sometimes unity is a good thing. Yeah, it feels good to be unified, but it's a terrible thing when you're unified and heading in the wrong direction. Expecting there to be a lot of daylight, and there's virtually none. So take, for example, the issue of the two-state solution and this effort by the U.S. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu wants to stay in power. Bibi Netanyahu is strongly incentivized to keep the war going because when the war is over, right, he's out of power. Right? Bibi Netanyahu's incentives do not necessarily align with the overall incentives of the Jewish state of Israel. And the U.N. and some Arab capitals and the EU to try to push forward a very quick uh, declaration of recognition of a Palestinian state. The Israeli cabinet put out a statement on Sunday during their cabinet meeting that every member of the cabinet signed off on, including Gantz, including Eisenhower, that basically said, no way, we are not starting this process with a declaration of a Palestinian state. We are not going to make, they didn't use these words, these are my words, but we're not going to make October 7th Palestinian Independence Day. And that position is held across. Bro, Donovan, Donovan Walland is in the chat. Long time, no see, no talk. Donovan, yes, who will become their benefactor? The Palestinians, Qatar, the Saudis, Jordan, Al-Sisi apparatus in Egypt or Iran, we will inevitably see. Ricardo, blessings. Wow, the whole gang is here. I should take three weeks off more often. Across the board. And then you think about the political constituencies that could be for a Palestinian state in Israel, which did once exist and was very vibrant. A lot of it was... was um... Yeah, right now there's very little Israeli support for a Palestinian state. Circumstances change and Israeli opinion will change. Right? Israeli public opinion on... A Palestinian state is not written in heaven. Wiped out figuratively, figuratively uh, during the Second Intifada. So meaning the left in Israel was dramatically weakened during the Second Intifada in the early 2000s when there were 140 suicide bombings, over you know over 1,000 Israelis slaughtered. And this was after Ehud Barak had went to Camp David and basically offered Yasser. Offered- yeah, over 1,000 Israelis slaughtered and as someone who converted to Judaism, that's the number that's of great significance to me. But there may very well have been 5,000 Palestinians killed in that conflict. And because Palestinians are in a life and death struggle with my in-group, right, I don't feel a great deal of empathy but for, for Palestinian suffering, but I have to obje- objectively realize that Palestinians suffer terribly. And they do have very strong claims to the very land upon which the, the Jewish state exists. Arafat, everything, right? He offered a Palestinian state. He offered East Jerusalem as the capital. I mean, he was willing to deal with every issue. And Arafat walked out and Israel got the second intifada. So that wiped out a lot of the left's, you know, the, the political support for a two-state solution. And now what was left with it. it it's striking how pro-Israel Fox News has become. It, it was always the most pro-Israel of the major channels, but they'd have on you know, Palestinian voices. They would have on critical coverage of Israel. And now Fox News has just fallen in line behind Israel in, in such a, a uniform way. I just don't recall anything like it. I mean, is there any major pundit in the United States on any like major network or major publication who is anti-Israel or particularly pro-Palestine? I can't think of one. It seems like overwhelmingly the most successful, highest paid, most visible pundits are uniformly pro-Israel. Then the Israeli political left in the last few years was largely populated in southern Israel, in those kibbutzim. That is where the peace activists lived and were organizing and were working on coexistence with the Palestinian Gazans. And those are the people who are sitting in tunnels today being held hostage. Those, Yeah, so the Israelis who were slaughtered in the October 7 attack were more likely than not uh, people on the left, people who wanted a peaceful solution with the Palestinians. And so evolution has its way, right? 
in in dire circumstances where you make yourself vulnerable to an outgroup that hates you, right? You're not going to be around very long in all likelihood to propagate your genes as much as a group that takes a more skeptical view of outgroups. On the other hand, when circumstances change and it's more profitable and it's a better way to accumulate uh, resources and to, to lead a good life is to have you know vigorous interchange with outgroups and trade and intercourse with outgroups, then a more open attitude will be more likely to help you propagate your genes. It's not like there's always right-wing solution is always best to an egalitarian, you know, open, liberal, tolerant, uh, left-wing attitude, right? In certain circumstances, it's, it's more beneficial to have an openness to outgroups. In other circumstances, it's more beneficial to have great suspicion of outgroups, right? The settlers are not particularly open to, you know, inter-religious dialogue or, you know, great intimacy with uh, Palestinians and Muslims and, and Arabs, and as a result, it'd be much more difficult for Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims to slaughter settlers because Israeli settlers are highly suspicious of outgroups. They have a very strong in-group identity. The Israelis who lived next to Gaza in southern Israel had a weaker in-group identity. They had greater openness and tolerance of outgroups such as Palestinians and Muslims. As a result, they employed many Palestinians and, and Gazans, and they brought them into their communities and they did all sorts of nice things for them. They transported them to hospitals. As a result, the Gazans had a, had a map for where to go to kill Jews. And so those Jews who made a choice of being overly open and vulnerable to an outgroup that hated them, many of them had to pay the ultimate price. Kibbutzim were the ones that were raided. In 2014, which was the last time there was a major Israel-Gaza war with a serious ground troop presence, lasted about 50 days. It was those... Ricardo, yeah, good point. Luke Ford on the move, better than Luke Ford in his studio. The difference is Luke Ford in his studio has better sound quality and I can play more clips. The great thing at being on the move is that I can't read. <laughs> I have to have to speak. And you think differently when you're moving, right? You speak differently when you're moving, right? It's not like there's just the brain, right? Just like there aren't just the Palestinians or the, the Jews, right? The brain operates differently when we're moving compared to when we're standing, compared to when we're lying down, to when we're seated, when we're in nature, all right? Depending on the circumstance that our brain is operating in, we operate completely differently. So, yeah, there are many ways, you know, 40 on the move is much more compelling, much more interesting, perhaps, you know, more likable, more, more provocative, more, more thoughtful, uh, less stilted on the move than when he is standing still, let alone sitting still inside. Those Israelis in the South that led the protest movement inside Israel calling on the Israeli government to stop the war because they wanted peaceful coexistence with the Palestinians in Gaza. And those are the Israelis that were slaughtered on October 7th, and their communities were destroyed, and many of them are, are being held hostage today. So, like, there's no, there's nobody in, in Israel, right? There's a great book by a journalist came out last three years called The Extended Mind. It talks about how we think differently when we're outside compared to inside. We think differently when we're standing up compared to sitting down. We think differently when we're talking with others opposed to being on our own, right? We are happier and more careful when we are thinking around other people than when we're at home alone, right? When we come home, we tend to be much more slovenly in our dress, in our thinking, in our speech, right? How we dress changes how we think, right? I think differently wearing a jacket and a nice collared shirt 
than if I were just in sweats and a t-shirt. We think differently when we're around trees and free-flowing streams and waterfalls and a beautiful ocean than when we're around skyscrapers. Like, I get a lot of energy from being in downtown Los Angeles, right? The skyscrapers that kind of emit a masculine energy or New York City, you know, throbs with an energy that you don't find in Los Angeles. So place, company, activity all have a profound effect on how we think. Now, nobody, really, like on, on, on any of the fringes, nowhere can you find people that are arguing that, that this is the moment to declare a Palestinian state. Can I ask you guys, um, and what about in Washington? It's hard for me to understand what our, our leaders are after here. When they say two-state solution, I would think the first part of the two-state solution is, oh, you guys who want your state, you have to recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state within uh, given borders and, and to be peaceful about that. That has to be institutional, encoded in an irrevocable way. <clears throat> or is it just here? You know, Palestinian, the PLO, the one organization everybody hates, right? Consider here, you got your own country uh, and, you know, the, the uh, route to importing the rockets is over here. So what, what are they talking about when they say Palestinian state uh, in, in, in Washington, in Saudi Arabia, and so forth? Uh, I presume there's something more concrete than, than just that. And second, does nobody think about aloud? There's a lot of people around the world who want their own state. Uh, you know, the Kurds would like their own state. The Ukrainians would like their own state. Is the answer is you, you get your own state if you kill enough Jews? Uh, you know, do we, we reward terrorism here? I, I can't imagine that that hasn't occurred to them. So like the questions, sorry to wind around the question, in Washington, in Saudi Arabia, in the UN, in all the worthies who say, to say what are they talking about? Yeah, often people have gotten their own state because they killed people. In fact, that has been the most common way that you get new states is because you've killed people. I wish the world didn't operate this way. I wish people got new states because they wrote beautiful poetry, composed powerful symphonies, did compelling live streams. The way the world works is that when you frighten and intimidate people, right, you often are more likely to get your way. Right? There are dozens of new states over, over the past 80 years because the most committed advocates for those new states committed violence, right? Israel was created, the modern state of Israel, through violence. Talking about and is there anything vaguely coherent here? Neil, you want to take it or should I? Dan, I, I think you should, uh, you should yeah. go ahead because this All is right. uh, much more your turf than mine. So I don't think they really know um, what they mean when they say Palestinian state. Uh, I think different parties here have different views in mind, I think, and different agendas. I think the Biden administration has a domestic political concern, which is they need to get images of chaos in Gaza off the front page of the press and off of TikTok. And they need to be shown in their mind. This is their view. I'm not, I'm not saying I agree with them, but in their view, the people around Biden need to bring down the temperature on the Palestinian issue and on the Hamas war issue inside the United States heading to 2024 because they're concerned about the risk or they're concerned about the, shall we say, deflated enthusiasm among the progressive base. And so but Israel is somewhat an ethno state. It is somewhat an ethnic state. If you are not on the right, right? If you don't have a traditional tribal way of viewing the world, you're not going to be thrilled with ethno states. You're not going to be thrilled with the tribal outlook on life. The tribal outlook on life is very different from the modern liberal secular left wing outlook on life. So, of course, people in the left wing party in the United States are not going to be big supporters of an ethno state like Israel. Somehow, this issue has become representative to them of an issue that they need to bring to deal with in order to to deal with the lack of enthusiasm among the progressive base as Biden heads into a re-election. We can get into that. I'm, I'm, I think they are overthinking it. Uh, I'm skeptical that them dealing with the Israel-Gaza issue is going to deal with their progressive base enthusiasm problem. But be that as it may, there's enough people around Biden saying that. And there are enough players in Arab capitals who they want two things, John. They want Hamas destroyed. Like everybody I speak to in the Arab world, really, like they all want Hamas gone. And, um, and they also don't want this to be a political headache for them in their own countries to the extent it's a problem on the quote-unquote Arab street. So they want Hamas gone. 
who do you think is more popular on the Arab street, Hamas or Israel? But I, I suspect that the Arab street, by a ratio of 50 to 1 at least, favors Hamas over Israel. Now, Arab elites tend not to be big fans of Hamas, but the Arab street are big fans of Hamas. Just like American elites are rarely fans of Donald Trump, but Donald Trump has a pretty steadfast constituency among about 40% of Americans. And they want Israel to finish the job, but they want to be seen to be throwing a bone, providing something positive to you know the, the, the peaceful, quote-unquote, Palestinian civilians that have been as, um, as victimized by Hamas as anybody. That is, that is their view. They need to show some momentum on that front. What does that actually mean, practically? I, I mean, they're talking as though the, the moral quality of a people it determines its success in the world determines whether or not it merits statehood, that uh, getting your own state is largely a matter of displaying a certain amount of you know, moral excellence. That's completely absurd. Like, why do we have a state of Pakistan? Because of a violent civil war in India. It means what, what, I'm, what, what is emerging is some sort of declaration that there is going to be a Palestinian state. In Tony Blinken's words, a, a, um, a time-bound and irreversible, his words, which to, to me are the two of the most dangerous words I've heard in talking about a Palestine. Right. So in northern England, there were these Pakistani immigrants to England who developed all sorts of grooming gangs. Right. That's not an inherent part of being Pakistani. That was an expression of a certain number of Pakistanis facing certain incentives. Right? If there'd been capital punishment for that type of behavior, right, you wouldn't have had grooming gangs. Right? So it was a combination of certain Pakistani immigrants right, taking advantage of a dissolute, uh, permissive, and anatomized part of uh, English society. Palestinian state, time-bound and irreversible. Now, keep in mind, that language has never been used before by the U.S. government. The, 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 the basis for negotiations that could lead to a Palestinian state have always been about the parties negotiating with one another directly, Israelis and Palestinians, without preconditions, just get to the table and negotiate. And it's not time-bound and irreversible. It's absolutely reversible, meaning if Hamas or Hamas 2.0 takes over the political leadership of a, of a, of a quasi-Palestinian state, you bet the, the process is reversible. So the fact that Blinken... Used right, the PLO used to be primarily a terrorist organization. Then it struck... There's some sort of accord with, with the Jewish state of Israel. Now the PLO is Fatah and is the, the reigning, you know, conventional representative of, you know, Arabs on the West Bank. And many people want uh, Fatah, which was the PLO, to take over in, in Gaza. So you have terrorist organizations all the time then find their way to what's now, re, you know, regarded as legitimate government. All right. People supported the IRA. And then there was a political accord. And people who formerly supported terrorism took part in, in terrorism, terrorist organizations such as the IRA that melded into a, a liberal democratic state. Use the word irreversible to me is quite alarming. And, and in the past, historically, it's always been milestone based, meaning this is the path we are on. If the Palestinians meet certain milestones, then they will get more and more instruments and assets of sovereignty on a path towards full sovereignty. I don't think it will ever be full sovereignty. I, mean, I don't think anyone wants a future Palestinian state to have its own military or its own airport or, or jurisdiction over its own. Okay, a state that doesn't have its own military and its own airport is only a rump of a state. So when he says, I don't think anyone wants that, yeah, he's saying none of his friends want that. But uh, I'm sure that there are millions of Palestinians who want that. Own airspace. But basically, any path to sovereignty is going to be, have to be. So if there, was, there were peace between Palestinians and Israelis, you know, what would happen? The Israeli economy would boom. 
and Palestinians would live next door to a booming economy while their own economy would just sputter along. So you really think that they would live at peace next to a group that they have a long enmity towards who's vastly excelling them in many, many areas. Right? You, you really think that they would live at ease and peacefully in that sort of humiliating situation. Be milestone base. That's how it's historically been talked talked about. I'm surprised, as I said, to some degree alarmed by how the administration is not talking about milestones. They're talking about making a move quickly and immediately towards a Palestinian state. I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I, I don't think there's any political leadership in any Palestinian faction ready to take on the, up the leadership of the state. So I think it's it's sort of like an empty declaration. It's like it's just they want to be able to say the administration and the government. I don't know how empty it is. There is widespread loathing of Israel's behavior in Gaza, and in in turn, there is widespread sympathy for the Palestinian people, just like there was widespread sympathy for Jews after World War II, after the Holocaust. And in part because of that widespread sympathy for Jews after World War II, you got the Jewish state. Now there's widespread sympathy around the world for the Palestinian people. All right, It's not far-fetched to think that as a result, powerful nations will move heaven and earth to create a Palestinian state. In the Arab capitals wants to be able to tell all the respective constituencies, look, we're doing something. We've, we've done something never done before. We're, we're declaring and recognizing a Palestinian state. That's never done before. We're not sure what that means. We're not sure who's going to lead it. We don't understand. We're not sure what the path is, but it's happening. Do you really think people are primarily interested in doing good or in feeling good, right? There's a vast desire among many nations right now to feel better about the Palestinians, right? So doing something that works is very different from doing something that feels good. And people generally prefer to do things that feel good rather than things that actually work. And it's and it's irreversible. You know, the the, the spaceship has, has taken off. They want it. They want they want that message. And again, to my earlier point, John, I I just think first of all, I don't think that's what Hamas wants. So we can get into that. But I just think the message to the Palestinian people and to the broader Arab world is a very dangerous message to say we, the, the West has never recognized a Palestinian state ever. October seventh happens. Yeah, there, there hadn't been a functioning Jewish state. Right, for, for 1,900 years, and then, then it happened. Right? We've got 50 different states in the world today that were created in large part through terrorism and through violence. The biggest massacre of Jews in the city right. today since the Holocaust, and now we declare a Palestinian state. And there was a previous vision, the Abraham Accord vision at least, which is why don't we get you guys to be rich first, get prosperous, make a lot of money, uh, and then we can... So what primarily motivates people? Is it to be rich or to be proud? People have hero systems. Uh, the Palestinians are not going to be at peace, even if they became three times richer than they are now, if the Jewish state next to them is five times richer per capita than they are and is excelling them in all sorts of areas like uh, entrepreneurship, science, you know, academic, literary contributions. I think Palestinians are just going to live in peace next to a state that vastly excels them. Talk about political stuff afterwards, which as an economist always struck me like a great idea. Yeah, I'd like to uh, point you gentlemen to two dates on the calendar. One is Sunday, the February the 26th. Uh, this is Vladimir Putin. We're going to talk about Putin in the second segment of the show, inviting leaders of Hamas and PLO to Moscow for what he called a, quote, interpalatine. And so why is you know Putin in bed with Hamas? Because they share common interests. Right? This wouldn't have happened if the United States had not so vigorously gone to bat for Ukraine and armed and educated and trained Ukraine and essentially made Ukraine a de facto member of NATO, right? That creates a situation where Russia and in general and Vladimir Putin in particular are strongly incentivized to create as much trouble for the United States as possible. 
And so Russia and Putin all over the world are creating trouble for the United States. And uh, training, aiding Hamas to attack Israel creates a tremendous headache for the United States. There's like only so much cognitive processing uh, our leaders can, can handle. And so the biggest competitor of the United States is China, but we're distracted from that because we are so deeply involved with, with Israel. Right? The United States has been distracted by conflicts that have nothing to do with America's national interests, right? The conflict over Ukraine and the conflict over Israel and Gaza, right? These are conflicts that have virtually nothing to do with American national interests, and we're being distracted from conflicts that are vital to American national interests, such as the rise of China. And so Russia and Putin would not have been incentivized to create trouble like what happened October 7 in southern Israel if the United States had not created a situation where Russia felt like they had to invade Ukraine to prevent the development of an armed and dangerous enemy on its flank. Palestinian meeting. Neil, you are a criminologist on the show. I'm dubbing you as that. I'd like you to maybe uh, get some thoughts on what you think Putin's up to. And Dan, I'd like you to weigh in on Rafah. We had uh, Netanyahu the other day saying that uh, Israel will assault that city. This is the southernmost city in Gaza. It's a population of about a million and a half people, which is about the size of Philadelphia. Anyway, Netanyahu has said that if the hostages aren't freed by uh, the first day of uh, Ramadan, which is Sunday, March the 10th, Israel's going in. So Neil, why don't you uh, give us some thoughts on Putin and then Dan Rafah. And Rafah, is it really Dan? I've seen the phrase key flashpoint. Is it really a key flashpoint this word? Neil, Neil you go first. Well, I, before I came to Jerusalem, I was at the Munich Security Conference, uh, which should really be renamed the Munich Insecurity conference in which Europeans couldn't decide what they were more worried about. Was it Vladimir Putin gaining ground in Ukraine or was it Donald Trump gaining ground in US opinion polls, but worried they were. Uh, and one of my uh, reasons for being there was to try and explain, especially uh, to our German hosts, why they needed to spend a little bit more than 1.5% of GDP. Oh, yeah, they, they needed Neil Ferguson to tell them who, who to worry about. In some senses, Donald Trump is more of a threat to them than Vladimir Putin, right? Putin is not going to invade Poland. Right? He's not going to invade you know, Estonia. Right. He's not even going to invade and take over all of Ukraine on their defense. And uh, they needed to do it uh, not just uh, because uh, Russia is in uh, Ukraine and, and not just. Yeah. Who is paying these talking heads? Right. Without spending much money, you can command the services of an awful lot of intellectuals. Right. Intellectuals come cheap. <laughs> and so a lot of foreign powers, right, they subsidize and, and essentially, you know, buy off all sorts of our leading pundits. Just because Donald Trump might be re-elected president, they aren't doing it actually for their own economic as well as uh, national security good. Now, what, what I uh, tried to argue was that you can't view the conflicts in Ukraine and Israel in isolation. They're part of a bigger geopolitical picture. Yeah, they're part of a bigger geopolitical picture where the United States acts and then other nations react or other nations act when the United States reacts. And uh, in that picture, as we've discussed on Goodfellas before, there's a kind of axis of ill will. Behind Russia stands China. Without Chinese dual-use technology, the Russian uh, war economy would have ground to a halt some time ago. Uh, alongside Russia, as a supplier of uh, drones and other equipment, is Iran. Uh, Russia is a player in the Middle East, has been since Barack Obama let them back in at the time of the Syrian red line uh, crisis. And uh, bringing up the rear, last but not least, is North Korea, also a source uh, of weapons uh, for the Russians. Uh, the tendency at the Munich Security Conference is to have a panel over there about Ukraine and a panel over there about the Middle East and not to join the dots. One person who did join the dots, incidentally, was uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who gave a barnstorming speech I heard in which he said uh, rather more forcefully than me that we had to deal with these threats. Right. Niall Ferguson wants them to join join the dots so that they will collect to Know, some sort of combined, you know, group effort against evil. 
uh, as, as one, as a single uh, global threat. And if we saw it that way, we would realize that it'd be folly to let Russia uh, win in Ukraine and folly to let Iran win in the Middle East. And Iran wins in the Middle East if Hamas survived. Wait, the title of this stream is I Think We're Alone Now. Why do I, I don't know if I can handle this success. 29 live viewers on YouTube. Right. That's, that's not even counting the zero viewers on X. It's not even counting one viewer on Odyssey. That's not even counting the one viewer on Rumble. That's not even counting two viewers on Kick. My God, we're not alone anymore. Right? This secret meeting has been penetrated. I hope I don't start selling out. Iran wins if a Palestinian state looks like a concession uh, to terrorist action. Iran wins if the Houthis continue to disrupt uh, trade uh, in the Red Sea. Iran wins uh, if Hezbollah is... Guys, we can't allow Iran to win. Well, sometimes it's uh, more in the United States' interest for Iran to win than for Iran to lose, right? You back someone into a corner, right? If Vladimir Putin gets backed into a corner, he's 100 times more likely to use nuclear weapons than if Vladimir Putin is allowed some sort of winning, right? You want to allow people to win. I have been a blogger on and off, but more on than off for 20, 27 years. And I've you know, penetrated deeply into various communities. And one strategy that I have employed to stay alive <laughs> is to uh, try to allow other people to win as much as possible, you know, particularly my, my most strident critics, right? Give them a voice, you know, let them feel like they're winning. Don't you know, demean or diminish people if I can possibly hold myself back from you know, those sort of, you know, tawdry pleasures. Because, yeah, when you allow other people to win, right, frequently you're more likely to win, right? You don't consistently win just because other people are losing. And backing Iran into a corner, backing China into a corner, backing Russia and Vladimir Putin into a corner, Probably not in America's best interests, right? Israel has felt backed into a corner by the behavior of Hamas. And so they have st struck out violently, as pretty much every nation does when it feels like its survival is at stake. Poised on Israel's northern border with a far larger arsenal than Hamas has ever possessed, Iran wins if militias in Syria and Iraq are also converging on the scene. And so I, I do think it's extremely important to notice these connections when Putin invites uh, as, as you just said, uh, Bill, Hamas and other leaders uh, and other organizations, leaders, Islamic uh, Jihad too, to Moscow. Uh, it's, you know, not so that they can watch the Tucker Carlson interview together uh, and swap stories. Uh, this is part of a coordinated effort to undermine democracy and more broadly, the Pax Americana. That's, that's what's happening. And I'm kind of glad that Putin is so overt about it because it makes it easier to persuade people these things are connected. And, you, you know, however you may feel, about the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza. And no doubt, we should all feel compassion for those Palestinians who have nothing but loathing for Hamas and who are now in the midst of a war zone that Hamas created. Nevertheless, you have to wonder. Oh, we should only have uh, compassion for Palestinians who, who loathe Hamas. The, the reason that the Palestinians support Hamas is because of the circumstance. It's not some inherent you know, quality, some inherent supernal transcendent quality of Hamas. When your situation's dire, Right, the enemy of your enemy becomes your friend. And so that's why Palestinians, to the extent that they support Hamas, support Hamas. It's not because of the particulars of Hamas's brutality against Israelis on October 7. It's people look for a group that's going to champion their interests. Different people have different interests. If your life is terrible, if you see you know, few, if any, prospects 
for your people to thrive, uh, you're very likely to lash out. And Hamas lashes out, and many Palestinians think that Hamas is fighting for them. And therefore, people will tend to look at the world in terms of who whom, who is doing what to whom, right? Who is on my side? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Understand, Israel must defeat Hamas as surely as Ukraine must not lose to Russia. This is a global challenge we confront, and it extends all the way uh, to the South China Sea, to the Philippines, to Taiwan. Dan Rafa. Yeah, so I'd say two things just on, on Neil's point. I mean, if you think about who Putin is inviting to Moscow, the idea that any of these factions could one day populate the leadership of the Palestinian state is so preposterous. So start with Hamas, where Yehya Sinwar has been saying since October 7th that there are more October 7th. Okay, so Israeli terrorists eventually you know, took governing positions with the, the new Jewish state of Israel, right? You didn't get this new one Jewish state just by singing songs, by holding hands, by reciting poetry, right? The modern Jewish state of Israel was created in part through committing acts of terrorism against the British who were occupying the the land at the time. So it's not like he's been he's been jostled in any way, at least in his public statements. He would, says he would do it again. You have Khalid Michel, who's one of the leaders of the political wing of, of Hamas outside of Gaza, who two weeks ago was in Turkey and gave an interview, and he was asked about a two-state solution. Like, why would they not hate the Jewish state of Israel? Right? It's a humiliation to them that there's a Jewish state of Israel on land that they believe belongs to their people. Of course they're going to hate the Jewish state. And he said there's no two-state solution. He says there's a one-state solution, meaning the Palestinians, Hamas, will be in charge of the one state. and that one. State. Yeah, the more dire your circumstances, the less likely you are to compromise, less likely you are to cooperate and have vigorous intercourse with our groups. Right? Do you think Larry David would be having vigorous intercourse you know, with some woman, Palestinian woman operating some you know, chicken shop if uh, he, he were living in the Jewish state of Israel and, you know, fighting for his life. State, to quote Khaled Michel, was from Russia, Nikra, up in Israel's north, all the way to, to a lot in the south. And, of course, from the river to the sea. So we want to be clear, he wasn't just talking about the river to the sea. He was also talking from north to south. One state solution. So that's Hamas. Then you have the Palestinian Authority. Obviously, Palestinian Islamic. Yeah. Every living thing tries to create an environment around it that is best suited for its thriving. And... I don't think we should be surprised that many Palestinians, many Arabs, many Muslims don't think that what's most conducive to their thriving is a safe, secure, thriving Jewish state in their midst. Jihad is another version of Hamas, so same, same version. Then you have uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority in, in the West Bank and Ramallah, which has yet, by the way, yet to condemn what happened on October 7th. Repeatedly, repeatedly cajoled and, and consulted and, uh, and has refused to condemn October 7th. Uh, the Palestinian Authority, which still... Yeah, why would people con- condemn someone who's the enemy of their enemy? It doesn't matter how distasteful, ugly, immoral you know, other groups are. People primarily decide who they support and who they oppose on the basis of their own group's best interests, right? We, most people are essentially tribal. Different tribes have different interests. Still has in place its policies to monetarily reward anyone who, any Palestinian who attempts Palestinian violence, terrorist violence against Jews. The name's- yeah, because due to two peoples fighting it out for control of one narrow strip of land, right? you have such an intense conflict of interests that a large number of people on each side want the other side to disappear. Most Israelis wish that the Palestinians would disappear. Most Palestinians wish that Jewish Israelis would disappear.
still name streets out of terrorists. They still provide monetary reward to families of terrorists who die in service of jihad of slaughtering Jews. This is the, look at the textbooks in the schools in the West Bank. They're full of indoctrination uh, of, Jew, of Jew hatred. So so there's no sign of the way. By the way, when I speak to officials in Gulf countries and Sunni Gulf countries, they also say that the Mahmoud Abbas. Yeah, because you've got a circumstance that creates mutual loathing. And until that circumstance changes, you're not going to change the mutual loathing. And the Palestinian Authority is hopeless. There's no way that they could be the leaders of a, of a future joint Palestinian state. So who are these factions? I have yet to hear of a single player being invited to Moscow. This is so I don't want to turn around this jacket. Thank you, Laponius. Very kind of you. Ford looks like some kind of fashion model. WTF, man. Well, this this uh, suit jacket is like 25 years old. And if I turn around, it's like torn and dirty. But it looks good from the front. Just like me. Like there are circumstances you know, opportunities, situations where I look good. You know, I often make a great first impression. You know, I can really pull it together for an hour here, a few minutes there, right? But then then people get to know me, and there are, like, all these cracks in my facade, right? I mean, all these women thought, oh, you know, he's so charming, he's, he's good-looking, he's, he's erudite, he's witty, and then, oh, my God, have you seen his blog? And then they, they saw the 1982 Dodge van that I drove from what? I drove a 1982 Dodge van from 1997 until about 2014. Right? I drove around a one-ton 1982 beat-up, rusting Dodge van. So for many of those years, I kept a mattress in the back. <laughs> and I remember this, this various women were warned, you know, don't get in that van. And uh, the response that I liked best was, well, I'll make him buy me dinner first. Actually, a real reformer that is willing to do the kinds of things that Neil's talking about in representing those Palestinian civilians that want some normalcy. And so I, I do think in that sense, it's clarifying. And I think our friends in the Biden administration who feel pressure to do something on the Palestinian state front, it is clarifying to say, these are the characters who are being gathered by, Ob you know, by Vladimir Putin, who you are, who you are rightly obsessed with. And, and just it's clarifying about whose side, which player's on. In terms of Rafa, this, this war, Neil is right that the Israeli leadership is extremely focused on finishing this war and ending it, and they can't finish it. With so I, I like this style of shirt, and I, and I just bought you know, this, this same style of shirt that I, I always wear from Amazon. And then, and then I saw, tell me, can you, can you notice this little, this little unsightly bit here? And now I, I don't know if I can wear this shirt anymore. There's like a little tiny tear here and I don't want to wear the shirt anymore and I was almost tempted into doing something unethical probably unethical I was tempted to complain to Amazon the shirt I just got from Amazon was delivered to me with a scratch on it and Amazon's so awesome that they automatically sent me a new one but I figured the odds are 90% that somehow I created this little tear in this brand new shirt I mean I spent like $30 on this shirt, and now it's got this little flaw, and even if other people can't see it, I feel it. I don't feel as confident walking around in this shirt with this tiny little infinitesimal tear. And so, what do I do? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask for a refund on on Amazon when, when I, I think the odds are ninety percent that I I did this, but I don't want to throw away a thirty dollar shirt. I mean, nobody's going to notice this, right? On the other hand, it's time to get this shirt dry clean, so that's going to cost five dollars. So why would I, why would I throw good money after bad and spend five dollars dry cleaning this shirt? 
I'm I'm impaled on the the horns of a dilemma. I mean, can you even can you even notice that that little that little unsightly unsightly tear in the shirt? Everyone's going to notice it now and and I've got I'm a very respectable man. Like I, I, as Laponia said, I'm a, I'm a, uh, a fashion, fashion plate, and and bloody heck, bloody heck, I spent thirty dollars on a brand new shirt. You know, I only wore it twice, and then, then I see there's this little tear in it, and I don't know if anyone, will, but I will notice. So where will my confidence go? Now, wh- what, what about my self-image? What about my self-esteem? What, what about my reputation with myself? You know, walking around in in a flawed garment. I mean, the crack, the flaw, the rip, the tear in this garment, and it symbolizes a crack, a flaw, a rip, a tear in my soul. People will see the flaw in this shirt, and they will recognize that I'm similarly torn and ripped and flawed inside once you get past the dazzling smile and upbeat, cheerful personality. I will be exposed I I take it to a dry cleaner, whatever they do for $5. Now, it's not a laundry. It's a dry cleaner. So perfect old guy bemoans a perfect shirt. What do I do? Do I go ahead and spend $5 dry cleaning a shirt with a tear in it that cannot be repaired? Without going to Rafa. They just can't. Uh, there's there's two, There's you know close to 20 uh, Hamas battalions, according to the Israeli leaders, that have been um, that have been wiped out. There's still a few more, and they can't wipe them out unless they get to Rafah. Uh, unfortunately, there's well over a million Palestinian civilians currently concentrated in Rafah. Everyone's putting pressure on Israel to figure out some kind of humanitarian corridor to get these Palestinians or a bunch of them out of the area and get them up to North Gaza. That is hard to do logistically. Uh, Israel's trying to do it. The risk, obviously, when you do that is a lot of bad actors will get out of Look, look let, let's stop talking about this gay Arab-Israeli conflict. Here's another dilemma. Right, it's typically the the high temperature in wintertime. Los Angeles is typically around you know sixty four degrees. Uh, low temperature, you know, typically around forty five. So walking around with a collared shirt, even with a you know black t shirt underneath, and my my seat seat is is not enough. Where where are my seat? Oh, here. Like it's not enough. I need a very light long sleeve t shirt to go on top of it. So I like these. Very light, uh, long sleeve T-shirts that I get off Amazon, right? But my sister doesn't like this, and so she bought me instead this very heavy sweater. But I need something more than just my long collared shirt, my my T-shirt, and my seat seat. I need, I need, I like this really light long sleeve black T-shirt. But my sister doesn't approve, and my sister has far better clothing taste than I do. So she bought me this, and she wants me to wear this you know, heavier sweater instead of that you know, delightfully light. Now, I just feel like I am being bathed in God's love when I wear this light long-sleeve T-shirt. But it doesn't look as good as this heavier sweater, right? Okay, forget the jacket. And I can't... I can't really wear this red shirt just as a red shirt. I need, I need to subdue the red with a lot of black. And this looks better, but it's heavier and it's not as comfortable. I like you know, being embraced in God's love. And that's what I feel like when I wear my light 
long sleeve black t-shirt but it's not classy and and if 40 is anything he's a very classy respectable man Rafa and get up to the north. So how Israel does this in a way that doesn't have bad, you know, Hamas remnants of Hamas sneaking up and getting safe haven up in the north in the northeast of Gaza, back on Israel's back on uh, Gaza's border with Israel is is difficult. So I think this Rafa situation is um, is is going to be ugly, and it is necessary. And exactly what Neil said, the Israeli leadership that keeps saying we we are going into Rafa is important not only because they probably do have to go into Rafa, but it's also sending a message. The international community and pressure from the international community has been unleashed on Israel. Every every part of it, right? The EU, the UN, the media, the NGOs, the the I mean, just you know, obviously now increasingly the Biden administration. They're all pressuring Israel, saying you cannot do Rafah, and Israel is saying we're. Oh, it's so surprising why they they pressure Israel. Like, who could imagine that? What were they possibly thinking? That's so crazy, man. Why is the international community concerned that uh, Israel killed twenty nine thousand Gazans? Cray, cray. Like he talks as though it's insane, that it's unmerited, that there that there are no legitimate reasons why various nation states and people are concerned about Israel killing twenty nine thousand Palestinians. And I'm not taking a strong position on whether Israel should invade uh, Gaza and you know whether Israel was particularly reckless. It does seem to me Israel was particularly reckless with the lives of Palestinians. Yes, right. I find twenty nine thousand dead Gazans a disturbing number. So. I have sympathy. I have sympathy for the international community saying, hey, Israel, you can't keep slaughtering tens of thousands of Palestinians, right? That's not a completely absurd concern. We're doing Rafa. And I think that sense of very. On the other hand, I have sympathy for supporters of Israel saying, wait, you're just going to allow, right, right, terrorists to, to come and send rockets into Israel and come in and slaughter 1,200 of our citizens. And we're not supposed to protect ourselves. I think that's that's a very strong argument too. So I'm not taking you know, one side in this fight, but I am saying that this idea that international concern about the death of thirty thousand Gazans is not an absurd concern. Important message to Sinwar and the people around him: like, wow, we believed we could catalyze a massive international response after October seventh that would put pressure on Israel to show some restraint. We knew they have to respond in some way, but they have to show some restraint. And this, and the Israeli leadership saying, no, we're going. We're even going if we have to go in Ramadan. Is sending a message that you, you're unleashing everything on us, right? You're sending genocide cases to the ICJ. You're, I mean, you're, you're throwing everything at us, and we're still going. That okay, this is Dan Senior, who wrote a book about ten years ago about Israel's high tech economy. That's a very important message, not only to the Hamas leadership, it's also an important message to all those regional actors that Neil talked about. And, I'll, and I just want to say, early on in this war... Yeah, the Israel is saying, you don't do this to me. We are coming back to Gaza a thousand times if we have to. When, when Gazans look up, they see a face like mine looking down at them. War. There was a big debate about whether Israel should move quickly to negotiations for the hostages. And Defense Minister Gallant, Yoav Gallant, argued very strongly that Israel would do best on negotiations for hostages if they move aggressively militarily quickly. That is to say, Israel's negotiating position, to the extent that they have one, will be strengthened by a strong military response. It will be strengthened by Hamas believing that Israel is willing to do whatever it has to do to wipe out Hamas and get the hostages back. And he, he believes he's vindicated. Gallant, he has said this publicly. He believes that the deal that he got in the first round, which most on the Israeli side believe on that first round of hostages released, was a good deal for Israel, was made possible because Israel... Well, great. Now I'm down to 24 live viewers on YouTube, even though I've added two on X, and I've now got three on Rumble. Have I kept the one on Odyssey? Yes, I still got the one on Odyssey. 
But I'm the only viewer on kick. Moved so aggressively on the military front and convincing the people around Sinwar that Israel was willing to move aggressively. And I think that the, the, the statements you're hearing them articulate on Rafa are of that same strategy. Ask, um, uh, the north end of Gaza seems like a terrible place to uh, spend six months while Israel cleans out the south end. The obvious place to go is Egypt. And it's interesting that the Arab states who say they want to get rid of Hamas and say they care about the Palestinian people will nonetheless not let a single one in. I saw a picture of border wall that Egypt has. It's amazing it's, what they're building. It would be Donald, like Donald, Donald Trump's dream. dream. They have a border wall like that. And, and But yet a little bit of pressure from the U.S. Okay, you care about Palestinians? Uh, let them have a place. Now, obviously, we know, we know this game. They are playing the game of, of increased Palestinian suffering as a, uh, a deliberate. So why does no neighboring state want to take in Palestinians? Because of the behavior of Palestinians, right? Palestinians, through their choices, through their deeds, have created a situation where no neighboring state is incentivized to allow them in. If Palestinians had behaved differently, right, other nation states would have reacted differently. It really increased Palestinian suffering as, as a weapon against Israel. I want to ask you the economic question, though. Can, how long can Israel hold out? Um, you know, there, there's, if this goes, this will go on for months more. You got uh, every country in the world, including the U.S., now giving up on them. You, you wrote a book on the Israeli economy, um, prosecuting war. As there's more and more sanctions, more and more, you know, whatever comes from the uh, from the rest of the world, and perhaps a second front. It's going to be hard for Israel. Uh, how, how do they do it? So, just on your first point, uh, it is true that Egypt. And I agree with you, John. I think I'm amazed that there has not been more focus on the lengths Egypt is going to prevent any suffering Gazans into their country. The reason they're doing this not only because they want to prolong the suffering, but I think the more the, the more uh, paramount, the paramount, the overriding motivation is they don't want these people. They don't want to do it because they don't want to legitimate the Jewish state and say that it's okay that uh, Jews came in, developed their own state, and essentially pushed out you know, my people in their country. That's what it's about. They don't want. I mean, I spoke to I spoke to an American official who was involved with getting out American. Palestinians, so American citizens who are Palestinian that live in Gaza. And when the war began, October 7th, the U.S. government was focused, this got less attention, but the American government was focused on getting out these American citizens who were living in Gaza. And he described to me how they had to, the, the Egyptian government was so nervous about any Palestinian leaving Gaza and coming into Egypt that if the American government wanted to get out a U.S. citizen that was Palestinian living in Gaza, the U.S. government had to provide its own personnel to personally escort that that person, not only through the border, but once they're in Egypt, that American officials had to like man the, the, the person in Egypt until they're on the, in the airport and on the plane and out. So it's like they, they do not want these people in their country, which the idea that Israel gets, you know, these these accusations of, of you know, quote unquote apartheid and, you know, the, Egypt, if this really is their concern, Egypt could solve this overnight if they were willing to take in uh, some Palestinian refugees. On the economic front, so the worrying news is uh, – I'm not worried about Israel's tech sector. Let me start with that. So if you – there's about 400-plus multinationals with major operations in Israel, and it's all the big companies, you know, Google, Meta, you know, Intel, I mean, Apple, and, then, and also a lot of non-tech companies like Procter Gamble and major auto companies. They All 400-plus major multinational companies have, you know, very expansive operations in Israel. Not a single one of them has announced they're shutting down since October 7th. Uh, so I, I, I think that's speaks to the deep tech and the deep innovation that, that there are D centers in Israel are doing. You don't just like unplug that. So the good news is uh, they are saying they seem to be sticking it out. And some of them made very strong statements about why they're sticking it out. The venture capital, Israel is, you know, tracks more global venture capital globally on a per capita basis than any country in the world. Obviously it's down, but it's also down globally. So there's so it's, it's hard to disentangle what's a secular trend in terms of global cap, global venture capital fundraising in terms of what's going on in tech globally versus what's happening in Israel and its war. The downside that I'm more focused on is just the simple reality that something somewhere between the last four months, somewhere between 10 to 30 percent of senior executives, most of companies in Israel have been called up to fight reserves. And there's just the reality that that head of business development that was working on closing a deal with an American company or, you know, some marketing, you know, they're just not there. They're gone for four months and they're fighting and stuff falls through the cracks. And that, that segment of the economy, which is the engine of the economy, takes a hit. That's inevitable. Now, 
partly because of the economic pressure, reserves are coming back. Meaning they're, they're, they're being they're being reintegrated to society. So, so most of the fighting in the near term, and that could change. Most of the fighting in the near term is going to be the regular army, not and not the reserves. So hopefully that pressure on the tech companies is going to go down. We'll see though, because uh, there could be other fronts that open up. You know, talk about the north. I mean, there's other stuff that could happen where Israel be back back in again, having to call up hundreds of thousands of reserves. Uh, I think, and this is not me trying to look at this oh, with rosy eyes. Uh, through rosy lenses. I will say, though, when I wrote Startup Nation, we looked at, uh, Saul and I looked at the, the history of, you know, like the 91 Gulf War, where Saddam Hussein was launching Scud missiles into Israel that the Israelis believed could be laced with chemical weapons, and the whole economy shut down, and everyone was in gas masks and sealed rooms. And the tech innovation and the, and the, and the interdisciplinary skills and the, and the kind of uh, initiative-taking mindset that came out of that period helped fuel a tech boom for the next couple of decades. It's not by accident that, you know, international investors view Israeli entrepreneurs as the most resourceful. They are, they are unique. Uh, mine and Eric, uh, mine and Neil's mutual friend, Eric, told me when he was at Google, he said, if you take the average Israeli 25-year-old and you put him or her up against their peers anywhere in the world, he told me at the time, this was in around 2008, 2009, Google will hire the Israeli 25-year-old any day of the week because they just have a level of maturity and interdisciplinary skills and leadership during pressure and crisis management skills that no young tech executives have anywhere in the world. Because Google will hire the Israeli over anyone else any day. There's just no comparison. So if you think about what these tech executives that are being called up are dealing with now, they think of the 30s and 40s. Now they're going back to their tech companies. And I just think, I wouldn't wish this upon any of them, but the reality is many of them are, you're going to see a whole other level of maturing crisis management skills. And so I think ultimately in the long run, the Israeli tech economy is going to be fine. My bigger question is Israel's military industrial base. I think that one wake-up call for Israel these last few months is how dependent it is on the U.S. for munitions and, and other defense capabilities. And it's not to say that the U.S. government is playing games with them politically. I do not think they are. I think the Biden administration is actually very strong in this front. They're trying to get Israel whatever Israel needs. And the White House has gone to extraordinary lengths despite in the face of dysfunction in Congress to get them what they need. But the reality is there are supply chain issues in the U.S. that Israel can't do anything about. There's other priorities the administration has vis-a-vis Ukraine that Israel can't do anything about. And I think there's this wake-up call. I picked this up in a bunch of meetings I was in, that Israel needs to pivot dramatically and quickly to building out its own military industrial base. And that, I think ultimately that's probably good for their economy. But in the short term, it's a huge pivot. It's going to require a big increase in defense spending. And that will have real economic implications that I think could be um, quite costly. So let's leave it there, gentlemen. Um, Neil, I hope you have a column in the near future. You've been to Kiev and you've now been to Jerusalem, and I think I think a contrast between the two wartime photos would be fascinating to uh, read about. So hopefully that's uh, hopefully that's somewhere in your mind right now. That is, that is actually what I woke up at four in the morning thinking about, Bill. That is exactly the contrast that I'm going to write about for my uh, column on Sunday. Uh, it's it's a fascinating one. I'll tell you one thing just to sign off on this topic: Ukrainians' global communications are so far vastly more successful than Israel's. Uh, Ukraine has really uh, aced global communications, and and everyone here admits that quite clear about it, that this has gone horribly wrong. And I think one thing I'm struck by is that Israelis are shocked at how unpopular they've become, uh, particularly amongst young people on both sides of the Atlantic. This has been a rude awakening. They can learn something from the way the Ukrainians do this. And I've been uh, offering some tips based on my trips to Kiev. Excellent. Look forward to it. Dan, it's proof that no good deed goes on. Okay. So my my favorite song for the, the past month is by S Club. Sun is high. It's the start of a long, hot summer. And for you and I hanging out with each other, since the early days, always being close when it mattered. Look how much we've changed. And if someday we find we ever have to say goodbye, we'll be running back these memories to relive time after time. Because these are the days of our lives that we'll always remember. These are the craziest times that we've been through together. These are the days. These are the days we'll always remember. Take care. Bye-bye. Change, change, change the signs.